Well, when George went up there, he was scared. There's a hole, there was a hole in the roof. And he looked inside and it was black and dark and he was scared and his uncle said, don't worry, there's nothing in there. And he said to Alfred that he thought, now this could be just the imagination of a little boy, but he thought the ark was a thousand feet long. Now, the only way that would be is if the cubit that's spoken of in Genesis being 300 cubits long, if the people before the flood were giants and their cubit was not 18, but 36 inches, I'm just saying, then you're looking at a thousand foot long arc, 900 to a thousand feet long arc, which would, if that is the case, it would um, certainly explain a little better, easier before we actually get inside and see the true size of it and see what's inside, how all the animals were, were put in. Man, you guys better have your seat belts locked in for this one. I got to sit down with John Adolphe from Lost World Museums. This man blew me away. He's fascinated with Noah's Ark, out of place artifacts, and giants. I stumbled across his YouTube channel and found some stuff on Noah. And I'd always heard about this guy a long time ago that claimed his uncle took him on Noah's Ark not once but twice during a, a meltback. But I didn't know who he was, his name, anything. Well, luckily, I found it. And this guy's name was George Hagopian. John is really good friends with the man that interviewed him and made the drawings and uh, released all this information. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey, guys. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. You would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. Different perspective. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, a place where the conversations are always enlightening. 
I'm your host, Justin. I'm the uh, host of also the Deke Bible Podcast here. We use the allegory of the Prometheus lens to take a second look at all fascinating subjects. Well, today we're going to revisit another subject that's a passion of mine and fascination, Noah's Ark. You know, we've already talked to uh, Andrew Jones over at the Dupinar side a few times. We've talked to Dr. Aaron Judkins. Well, I have another guest for you today that's going to come at you from a different perspective and a whole new light. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, I stumbled across this man's YouTube channel in my research for the documentary that I'm working on. And uh, just on a whim, I was like, I'm going to reach out to him and see if he's got time to talk to me. And he was uh, kind enough to, to grace us with his presence and his knowledge. So we are extremely grateful for that. But I'd like to welcome to the channel, John Adolfi from Lost Worlds Museum and YouTube channel. Thank you, John, Justin. thank you so much. Appreciate it being here. Appreciate you asking me on. Now, I appreciate the time. I mean, you are a man with a, a wealth of knowledge. I, I love how you break down the material and make it palpable for people. So I definitely appreciate your time and dedication. Thank you. And I feel the need I need to explain that random bell. I found it's much easier when I edit the videos because I edit those first to convert them to MP3 form and then add my voiceovers and stuff later for Spotify and uh Apple Podcast, things like that. So that was the subscription bell. Just I thought I needed to explain that random bell in the middle of this episode. Well, uh, for the viewers that are not familiar with you, just give us a little background, how, how you got into this space and your passions, and just give us a feel for who, who John sure. is. I was stationed in San Diego um, in the United States Navy, and I was walking on the ship one day, minding my own business. I was what you would consider an ex-Catholic agnostic. And suddenly, uh, not a voice, but you know how you, you think things, you know, you have a conversation rolling around in your head. Sometimes things come out of nowhere. Sometimes the craziest thoughts hit us. And this thought was injected into my head that said, the Bible is the inspired word of God and through men can be trusted. And I mean, that was out of nowhere. And I thought about it for a moment. And I didn't have any real chip on my shoulder one way or the other. And so exploring the apes or, or Adam concept, so to speak, um, wasn't like I, there wasn't a lot of information in my head. There was just, you know, I was 23 years old. And so I thought about the evolution proposition. And I realized that at the end of that proposition, the idea that we came from nothing will end up being nothing. And that was just I was. Not to sound overdramatic, but I was literally horrified how depressing and how dark and how um, hopeless that proposition was. I had never thought about it from cause, start to finish, cause to effect. And then I turned to the left, so to speak, in my mind after I concluded that. And this was all happening at the speed of thought. And then the weirdest thing happened. I concluded partly by default that it has to be. And I was not looking to do that. I was not looking to become a Christian or get involved in any of this that we're doing here today. That was not my intent. I was doing just fine. So, you know, they say that Jesus is a crutch for people. Well, this was not my experience at all. I was doing just great. Mm -hmm. But this interested me and it intrigued me. And I was, uh, and truth, uh, you know, I love truth, always have, right from the very beginning as a child. 
And so I wanted to find out what the truth was about this. So I read the first four Gospels, and honestly, I was really touched. There was no evangelist or any kind of pastor, you know, emphasizing certain words or statements or getting emotional about things. It was just me and the Bible and reading it. That was it. There was no one around me to support me. I was just on my own to do this. And so this led uh, to me to become a Christian. And then there was this book called Secrets of the Lost Races by Rennie Norbergen. And I recommend that book to anybody that's interested in ancient technology, giants, Noah's Ark, history. Fantastic. It's not preachy. And it shares a, a um, basically what our museum is uh, doing its best in, to exemplify in, in mostly in video format. Um, and it was just fascinating. I mean, you know, is it? As the shirt says here, apes, aliens, or Adam. We included the alien theory because it's a viable theory because we see things that are fantastic in our past and we wonder just exactly how they did it. And a, I don't know if you want to say, honest thinking individual who may believe in aliens, which was Von Donneken, brought that theory in and said, hey guys, evolution needs a little bit of help. There was an explosion of, of society, technology, writing, um, building of the most incredible uh, edifices that we really can't explain. We didn't ease into it. We didn't go from hunter-gatherers to farmers to all of a sudden building the pyramids. So how in the world did this happen? And at least they have the foresight or the insight to try to figure out how this is done without trying to go to, well... They didn't invite invent the wheel, but they had sleds and they had ropes and with a lot of manpower and a lot of time, they were able to do these things. That's typically the, the normal answer. Time is always the answer. Don't have oh. time at it. So in 2005, um, we started something called the Lost World Museum, and it's more of a concept than it is an actual museum. Now, my real estate office in Phoenix, New York, has a storefront where I put something in the window with a literature out box outside just as a way of satisfying that itch that I've always wanted to have a museum. But understand that when you do have a museum, it is a very costly thing, and we were not prepared to do that. So in 2000, um, in 2020, there was this thing called TikTok that I found out about in January. And I started experimenting with it, with my real estate business and this other comedic thing that I was doing. And um, I uh, then decided to try something for the museum. Somebody had shown me a mastodon tooth and I held it in my hand and I spoke about it for about 20 seconds. Well, I had kept that clip. Well, I put that clip up as a, a separate channel, Lost World Museum. And the hits that I got meant so much to me that the real estate and the other thing that I was doing, I just deleted it. <laughs> I deleted the channels because I, I realized that the content that I was uh, sharing and producing, even in that one 20-second video, um, meant more to me and, and, and I was hoping to them that uh, I wanted to continue uh, expanding on it. So that's basically how it started. And that, that's usually how it starts. It starts uh, just testing the waters. And next thing you know, it's like uh, God hits you with this passion and this purpose and what, whatever it is. And you're doing it time 
disappears. All of the things that used to, you know, interest you disappear. <laughs> That's yeah. the same thing that, that uh, happened with me in this whole journey of, of, of truth and discovery. Once I started reading these books and having these conversations with men like you, man, this is all I want to do. <laughs> yeah. And you know, let me just put a disclaimer here. Okay. I don't think I've ever done this on any interview before. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we take Genesis literally? Now, I've heard some things before other people that say, well, if you take if you can take Genesis literally, then you can take the rest of the Bible literally. It, it, it doesn't if you can't take Genesis, Genesis literally, then it undermines, um, you know, other parts of the Bible, especially when Jesus is endorsing and speaking as if there was a real Moses, there was a real flood, there was a real Adam and Eve. And when he speaks like that, then you're thinking, OK, well, maybe now Jesus is talking an allegory. Because it really isn't real. Was the earth really created? I'm talking life on earth now. Was life on earth really created in seven, a set, seven literal 24-hour periods? And the answer is yes. Now, here's the thing that most people, and I have not emphasized this on any of the videos that I've done, not, at least not yet. This is where it really undermines the, um, the gospel itself when you step away from seven literal days of creation. And that is the force or the ability for God to speak things into existence. He spoke the world into existence in seven days. And so since he has that capacity or that power, the ability to do that, or that's how he works through his word. When he says cat, the word cat comes out and then it instantaneously becomes a cat. When the man, now you take that and move it over to when, when he was with the man with the withered hand, he said, Jesus, who was the creator in the beginning, it was actually him that actually spoke everything into existence in his pre-incarnate incarnate form. He said to the man with the withered hand, same thing, stretch forth your hand. And when he did, it was healed. Or Peter, come. And then Peter was able to walk on the water or get up off your bed. Mm -hmm. He spoke words to allow a man to walk on the water. He spoke words that allowed a withered hand to be healed. Only say the word the centurion said and my servant shall be healed. And I always found this uh, association with the word, you know, the spoken word and also, you know, literal manifestation of the word, you know, Jesus Christ, just so fascinating because I'm a, you know, not a this or that guy, but a this and this kind of guy. I think it's usually two roads merging from one or into one. But even, you know, he talked about, you know, creation. He spoke the words, you know, speech is vibrations. And even science is looking into, you know, the whole theory of uh, string theory. You know, everything is just tied together by vibrations and even... And even Pythagoras had his theory about the music of the spheres, that there's a, a song being sung or, or played holding all of creation together. It's just at a frequency so low that we can't hear it. Just, you know, really fascinating stuff when you go into the, the spoken word and the, and the vibrations and frequencies and things like that. I even heard my pastor say one time that when he told Lazarus to come forth, he had to be sure and call him out by name or all the graves would have opened up within the sound of his voice. Amazing stuff. Just wanted to add that thought in there. 
So now the question is, is that if he can speak the world into existence in seven literal days, just by the very fact of his building block called his word out of his mouth, and he can heal a man with his word coming out of his mouth, then what power does the Bible have in restoring us spiritually? I think this is something that is mm. completely overlooked and under, underst not understood to a greater degree. When he says, be ye perfect, what you'll hear Christians, it's impossible to be perfect. Jesus was perfect. He's our example. Whew. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so anyway, that's the reason why believing Genesis and the literalness of it can way undermine the gospel uh, and eclipse it. So then we have to look for other doctrinal uh, expositions to either wiggle out of obedience or find a way to uh, call it legalism or, okay, or, um, you know, find a way to be able to feel like we're still going to heaven, but we, but the one major building block of speaking righteousness into us where there is none by the power of his word, little coiled springs in the Bible, ready to jump out as soon as we, you know, depend on it, believe it, really embrace it. Uh, is the difference between the, the faith of demons and the faith of Jesus. How's that mm. for an introduction on Genesis? Yeah, no doubt. Wow. And, and, that, and that's a book, man, it's just constantly unrolling, unveiling, and, and speaking and, and revealing things as I read it and I study it. Oh, yeah. And uh, the other podcast we do, the Dig Bible Podcast, we do a uh, a monthly Bible study, or not yeah, once a month, but we just tear apart a book and go through it, whether it's two chapters at a time or whatever, until we finish it. And we've done two books so far and we're debating on which one we want to go into. And I'm over here like Genesis, Genesis, <laughs> Genesis. And <laughs> Steve's like, I want to get to it, man, but golly, we'll be, we'll be on Genesis for a year. I'm like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> How about first 11 chapters of Genesis? How about we'll just, you know, leave it at that. You know I mean? Because you're right. It is this, it's, it's over a thousand. What is it? A, a 1600, 2000, like 2,500 years of, of history. Mm -hmm. something like that yeah well uh one thing that i you know how i found you is you know i was looking you know for noah's ark material and when i found your channel i was like man this guy's in the same stuff that i am it, it, you know it's lost civilizations it's you know out of place artifacts you know it's giants the great flood and uh so i actually found just a, a smorgasbord of material i've been going through your stuff since so uh, we last talked but i always heard now this is something i wasn't familiar with i just heard tidbits about it in passing from other friends and stuff like that but i always heard that there was a man that claimed that his father had taken him to noah's ark and that it was during a dry spell and he got to see it and walked around in it and heard some other accounts, you know, and I actually a couple times I tried Google searching and trying to find it. And I guess I just wouldn't type in the right stuff and I just couldn't find it. And that's what I was doing. I was trying to find this account to take a deep dive into this. And that's how I found your video through searching through, I believe it was DuckDuckGo and your videos popped up and I found it. Uh, and that, that's the reason why we brought you on here today is because, uh, you have, uh, 
I guess you would call it second hand right. knowledge. You have a yeah. close relationship and uh, friendship with the person that has all the first hand accounts. That's correct. Well, yeah. just walk us through all that. And, okay. And, the gentleman's name that you're referring to, that is the principal, the one that actually saw Noah's Ark. His name is George Hagopian. George Hagopian was an Armenian that when he was very young, they moved from one part of Turkey to the base of the mountain. And he lived um, with his uncle. And his uncle was the one that took him up the mountain when it was, quote unquote, a smooth year. And a smooth year means that it's either a, a meltback or a drought or both. And during those times that happen every 20 years or so, they say, um, is when the ark is, uh, is viewable. And so um, George went up there at the age of eight uh, in 1902. And he also returned to the ark two years later at 10 years of age in 1904. So Alfred found George through George's real estate agent, George's real estate agent, Hagopian told her the story. He had not talked about the story for most of his life for fear that he was going to be either killed or dragged back to Turkey because he was a defector um, in the army and spent some time in a gulag. There's a whole story behind it. But, and then he went back during the genocide in 1922, I think it was, and shot 16 millimeter footage with another fella and of, the, of them killing people, um, you know, throwing them off the ships and stuff, you know, during that part, they were going there to go to look at, to photograph Noah's Ark. They ran into this genocide situation where the Muslims or the, the Turks were killing the Christian Armenians. And uh, there's something to this day that they still deny happened. And so he took that footage back to the United States, set up a meeting and showed the footage. When he was there, some men were there, scared the living daylights out of him. And he never spoke about Noah's Ark again or his involvement with Turkey or anything until he was around 70 years old. And he spoke to his and he was not married. And he spoke to his agent, real estate agent, and told her the whole story. Well, the real estate agent heard about Alfred Lee because they had just gone to, uh, to Mount Ararat in 1969, a year before, and found wood at the 14,000-foot level with French explorer Ferdinand Navarra. Ferdinand Navarra had found wood in 1952 and 1955, and they hired him to bring him back to the same spot. So when she found out about Alfred Lee, she called him up, said, I know someone that has seen Noah's Ark. And she put Alfred in touch with George. Now, this was very, very um, providential, fortuitous, because Alfred himself spent a lot of time in the Orient himself growing up. His father was a missionary to Korea, he was also a POW at the age of three to seven years old um, during the uh, Japanese occupation of the Philippines. And so he was around uh, the, he says, the Oriental mind in the sense that he was able to understand how they think. So when he put him, when they, when the two came together, 
it was a perfect union because he knew how to navigate the waters of talking to him and getting extracting as much information out of him as possible by asking the right questions, knowing how the, you know, the middle, not Middle Eastern, but the Orient, he says, Oriental mind. So he spent a year and a half interviewing George Agopian and he collected his um, much of his uh, of his interview on audio cassette tape. Now, then Alfred, who was a um, archaeological illustrator, decided to then draw the memories of George Agopian, exactly how the Ark looked. And I've got the painting here that I'd like to show you. And all the paintings, the diagrams, the drawings, graphs, all the things mentioned in this episode can be found on the YouTube channel. So if you're not subscribed to that, definitely need to go check that out because most of my interviews are in video format. So all the things that we are talking about that are visuals can be seen on there. Of what they ended up with. I mean, Hagopian was a director, literally. He would sit there and say, the the edges of it, the corners were rounded, and there was a keel. Draw it, he'd say, you know? And so this is what it looked like. And that is the drawing of, of Alfred Lee with the direction of George Agopian. Now, what's interesting, and I'm going to show you a closer. I'll go back to that in just a second, is the fact that it's got stairs. Mm-hmm. And... Nobody could, you know, a lot of people was like, why does in the, why in the world does that thing have stairs? Well, I think it's uh, Josephus because he talks about that people were traveling up there and seeing it forever and taking uh, artifacts and stuff as uh, holy relics. So, you know, the glacier goes up and down, over it, down. So when they built that, obviously the snow line was probably right about here. Mm -hmm. And so they took whatever wood that they could get and they built this. So they could get on top, just like you had said, and get the, scrape some tar off, get a little piece of wood. Well, when George went up there, he was scared. There's a hole, there was a hole in the roof. And he looked inside and it was black and dark and he was scared. And his uncle said, don't worry, there's nothing in there. And he said to Alfred that he thought, now this could be just the imagination of a little boy, but he thought, The ark was a thousand feet long. Now, the only way that would be is if the cubit that's spoken of in Genesis being 300 cubits long, if the people before the flood were giants and their cubit was not 18, but 36 inches, I'm just saying, Mm -hmm. then you're looking at a thousand foot long ark, 900 to a thousand feet long ark, which would, if that is the case, it would um, certainly explain a little better, easier, before we actually get inside and see the true size of it and see what's inside, how all the animals were, were put in. Now, the different sizes of the ark, and let me show you, here's a, um, here's a replica of it. The different sizes of the ark of 300 cubits, when dealing with different cubits, is anywhere between 450 to 600 feet long with the various cubits that we have today. Not a, not quite a thousand. What's interesting about it is, is that the window that's spoken of in Genesis is actually, and George Agopian saw it, there is a succession of windows. There's, this is open right here underneath 
and the light and the air could go inside here and not just light up the first floor because there's three floors all together. This middle section was missing like in a mall. And so the light and air could hit all three levels on the arc. Very clever. Mm -hmm. He did not see the door because the way it was positioned, yeah. the way it was positioned, it was on a ledge and the ledge was right here. So he wasn't able to get on that side. He could only see this side and he could only walk on top. Okay. If you look at this right here, the ledge would be on the other side of the arc and it goes into a gorge about a hundred feet down. Now, when George was there, when he came back, that is, this is what it looked like when he came back. And so there's, it's starting to be covered again. Yeah, it was starting to. And what was exactly. the time gap difference? Was it like seven and ten? Yeah. Two thousand. No, all those dates that you see online are Alfred does not do very well with the numbers. Okay, he he had said two thousand nineteen oh eight, nineteen ten, nineteen oh six. There's a lot of things that have been published. I finally got it straight based on finding out when George was uh, born. He was born in um, 1894. So when he was eight years old, it was 1902. Okay. So it was 1902 and then 1904. So that's when he was there at the, uh, at the site. Now, stop me if you have any questions. I'm just going to. Oh, no, you just go, man. This is fascinating. And one thing, I love that boat. Where did you find that boat? I had it made. Uh, you know, okay. based on the specifications of, of the best eyewitness reports, which uh, George being one of them, and you can see the keel mm -hmm. and the rounded edges, which means that there's technology here. When you round an edge on a boat, you'll see a lot of arcs with square edges. Yeah. He said it wasn't. It was rounded. It was, it was fascinating. Um, I'm going to show you something. This right here. It's called the deck tour. It's going to be kind of cumbersome to show you. Okay. It is a lie detecting machine. Did your wife this is, buy you that? What's that? Did your wife buy you that? No, I bought me that. <laughs> There's a readout right here that, and I'm going to show you an example. It takes the voice and you can have it on audio cassette tape or whatever, and you put it or, or live and you put it through it, and it's a voice stress analyzer. So it's not it's not um, testing seven different things or three different things. It's only only testing one thing. Some people think that it's it's uh, it doesn't really work, but those who know how to work it will state that it's got a, a greater degree of accuracy than than you, than some people give it. They took George. They took the audio cassette tape. And they ran it through uh, George's testimony. And although it's going to be in reverse vision, I'm going to just read a couple of things of what George said. He said, um, when, when were you there in 1902? And he says, yes. 
how often did you see it? And George says, twice. And then he was, he was asked, then he said, when I saw Noah's Ark 10 years old, no stress in his voice, none. Now, does that mean that he's telling the truth? No, not necessarily, but this was what, he says, when we got halfway there with Donkey, my uncle carried, carried me on his back. And then he said, what was the color of the wood? He said, green. So I guess it's got moss all over it. Was there any snow on the top? Just a little bit. And he said that he had, he, he says there was no nails in it, no iron. And they t there was a gun that his uncle had and he, um, he said not anything got through it. He, his uncle shot the ark and, it, and basically the bullet bounced right off of it. Apparently some of the ark is, is pure stone, he said. And wow. again, this entire interview that was put through the deck tour in the 70s came up uh, negative. It wasn't lying. It wasn't lying. It's an amazing story. I mean, it is an amazing story. Are you a member of the Prometheus Lens Podcast members only group? And if not, what are you waiting for? Come join the band of brothers on the hero's journey. With this members-only package, you get early access to episodes. You get special episodes that nobody else gets, special video content, documentaries. And you help support the show and keep the lights on. You know, doing podcasts, they can be very expensive. A lot of people don't realize all the subscriptions, the website fees, the, the video and audio subscriptions and things like that. So if you enjoy the content, help keep the lights on, help me keep doing what I love to do, keep bringing you fire each and every week. Now, a brief word from our sponsor. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did, and we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted, and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you, and relax you. We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. Enjoy. So Alfred then, and I'm going to, I don't want to, Alfred right there is Alfred. He's the younger fellow right there. The one on the right. Yep. Okay. Alfred is interviewing with his pencil again, another eyewitness report. This was at something called the Archathon. It was in Deming, New Mexico in 1985. I knew Alfred at that time. That's when I was introduced to Alfred. And Alfred went to that, and it just so happened that this man by the name of Ed Davis showed up, and Alfred got the opportunity to not only hear him, 
Alfred sm smelled fraud in the very beginning. The guy had a Texan accent. He had this big old silver buckle on with a with a cowboy hat and a turquoise and silver buckle. And to all my Texans and cowboy hat and big buckle wearing listeners, he's not saying that you guys are all frauds. This is a stereotype that he's painting with a broad brush. I just thought I'd say that. He thought, oh boy, here we go. But the more he spoke, the more he described, it sounded exactly like what Hagopian described. The journey to get there, the way marks along the way. He described the exact same thing. So in a room, and it took about a day, they spent hours in that room. He put together, he took pieces of paper and taped them together, Alfred did and started sketching the memories of, of Ed Davis. And this is what Ed Davis said he saw. And for those listening, this picture is a picture of this huge gorge and this arc broken in two pieces, one on each side of the gorge. So Ed Davis seen this after George Hagopian, because if you remember, he said that it was on a ledge. So this arc had fell down, snapped in half, and laid inside of this gorge. And that, and that is what Ed Davis was describing that he saw. It was in 1943, and the uh, Armenians at the, at the base of the, uh, of the mountain, see, it was either Armenians or Turks, I'm not sure which, but I think it was Armenians, took him up the mountain. He wasn't able to get to it. He was able, he was said it was about 800 yards from it and it had broken in two. The cliff was right over here where it was setting up on originally. And I'll show you another drawing that shows that not to, not to try to get yourself orientated here. It was hard for me until I understood this is a waterfall. So all this was melting. The glacier was melting and he's up looking down. And if you were on the other side of the mountain, Looking at the mountain, you would see the waterfall coming down. That's what that is. He said you could see inside. There's that mall or that section that's been removed so that the air and light can get to all three levels. And he drew it the exact same way with the windows stretching all the way down. Yep. Here's where Alfred took and combined both of the um, of the accounts, so there's Hagopian, mm -hmm. about a hundred feet from 1904 to 1943. It came down the side of the mountain and then broke into because of the glacier's power. And so now it's a debris field. Yeah, because it could like it fell down and broke. And then all this water moving and pushing down this waterfall pushed it into this other side. That's what it looks That's right. like. That's right. They think they know where that is. That is on the, the GPS, um, longitude and latitude. And there are people who I know personally that are keeping watch on it on the Google map um, and also to um, actually going over there. Uh, and look and trying to get to as close as they can to that site 
to photograph it. And the, um, the latest photographs that we have from that area that were taken personally was 2022. So the next two years are supposed to be a couple of interesting years. Apparently the solar whatever is going to be, they've got some solar radiation or some solar um, uh, cycle that's taking place that's going to create a, um, a little bit more extra heat, possibly a meltback um, on the mountain. So to all my Southerners and redneck friends that are listening, run those diesel trucks and those big gas-guzzling SUVs a little bit more despite what Greta Thunberg tells you. I will be putting more miles on my Challenger in the upcoming months and years. And let's get this meltback happening and let's find this ark. Conservation of the artifacts is everyone's responsibility. So we'll see. Man, that's that's just uh, crazy. Uh, now, I, we talked to Dr. Aaron Judkins. He hiked this mountain and searched for it and was doing core drilling. Was he in the vicinity of, of this location or was he off? You know, I don't know. I have not asked him that. That's a really good question. I, I, know, not asked I know when I asked him, you know, he, you know, he didn't like give me direct, you know, directions or nothing. But I, I do recall him saying that there's a section of the mountain that is basically off limits. That it's dangerous. If you know, you can go, but you run risk of getting captured by militia and military groups because it's right on the border of uh, Iran, Syria, and uh, that's correct. And all these just you know hostile countries. Yeah. And, you know, he was the, when he was there in 2013, I think it was. Uh, that's the way it was. But in 2022, my friend said that people were running all over the mountain. He said it was almost as if it was like they opened up the gate and said, OK, admission is free. Go have at it. He said there were tons of people. And that was when they were able to get over and take a peek and take some photos of that area. And it's completely um, submerged now. It's completely covered in ice now. It is covered in ice, yeah. They think that there's an impression that you can see, you know, the ice forming uh, part of the arc. I'm not 100% convinced they are. But I'm I'm not saying that there, the arc isn't underneath that area there. That certainly could be. But you know how it is. Shadows and... and People have, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I really People am see not. what they I, want to see, you know? Well, yeah. And, you know, they're, it's, let me put it this way. It's not convincing enough, obviously. This is not, this is hopeful. It's a very, a, a, a huge area of interest. Very important. But let's just keep an open mind. Oh, definitely. And which, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask because uh, I can't remember if I'd seen this on your video or if this is something I had read. But basically that, if I understood it correctly now, but that George, when he went up there, he saw the boat, you know, on the edge of this mountain. And then later when this other gentleman, the Texan, seen it and it was broken in half, that someone like went through like the uh the natural disasters and the catastrophes and things like that and tried to form a timeline of maybe how this thing fell that there was a uh let me see 
that there was a an earthquake or or something like that in this region oh, okay. around a certain yeah. time that maybe they, they theorized that caused this and it actually lines up with the two men's timeline. It, it may, it may. You know, the Russians saw it in 1916, supposedly. And when they saw it, it I believe it was intact, but it already come down off the shelf. So in 2000, in 1916, it was still intact, but it come down. So sometime between, now if that's the case, then sometime between 1904 and 1916 is when that came down off the shelf. But there was a horrific earthquake that blew part of the side of the mountain off. And it buried a monastery that was 9,000 feet up the side of Mount Ararat, where the ark is directly above it. Interesting. That had ark artifacts in there. And in 1840, I believe it was, this earthquake took place, blew part of the mountain out and off and down, and completely buried the monastery. And um, and then created this, this uh, shelf that Hagopians, uh, that Hagopian was not able to get around to see. But that's when that shelf was created, was during the earthquake of 1840. And you, and uh, that's when that gorge, uh, how's that pronounced? The Aura? Aura Gorge, Ahura yeah. Aura Gorge was, was formed. Created. That's correct. Hey guys, what's up? Tom Dunn here from Through the Black. We have launched our new ministry outreach no more dead babies and the website is no more dead babies.com we want you to go to that website and get a free t-shirt okay um and uh we want you to join the movement okay we need soldiers to step up and say that they're going to be a voice for the voiceless okay guys we've never done anything like this before this is a big deal and i don't know who all is ready for it out there but it's time to step up okay and we're asking you to go to the website and order the shirt. The shirt is free, but you got to pay for shipping, okay? Um, and uh, we're going to ship it out to you as soon as we get it. You, you tell us what size you need, and then we're going to send you the T-shirt, okay? Join us. Uh, the goal is to get thousands of these shirts. I keep pushing this. I think this boldness can be contagious, contagious, contagious. That's correct. And what's you know, something struck me the other day. When I was thinking about the monastery, the monastery was 9,000 feet up. The ark is allegedly 15,500 feet up. The monastery was, is right below where, they, where all the best evidence says that it is. The monastery was 6,000 feet directly below the area of interest. I find that very, if you're a crime scene investigator, I find that very telling. It's a monastery built 9,000 feet up directly to where we believe the ark is, and it had artifacts, wood in, uh, in, on display in the monastery. Of course it did. And of course it's right there. Why wouldn't you? And 9,000 feet is a good elevation. You're not too far up to where it becomes inhospitable, but you're far enough or you're closer to this on the holy mountain of the holy ark of God. Mm -hmm. That's what I was about to say, because it's That's like a sacred site. And it's almost like they yeah. were, they wanted to be close to it and also protect it. Yeah. You don't build a monastery 9,000 feet up on the side of a mountain for nothing. Mm -hmm. If you do have a reason and that reason obvi is obvious to me now.
But it wasn't on the south side that they built it. It wasn't on the east side. It was right there. And that's the reason why it got buried, because when the earthquake hit, created the shelf right underneath the Ahura Gorge was created, and it buried that. Now, what's your opinion on the uh, the Dupinar formation? Because well, you know, that was the first place that I had seen, you know, for, for Noah's Ark. And then, of course, when you see it, there's this, I mean, it's a boat formation. It looks just like a boat. And the, the, the measurements are what the biblical measurements say it is. And uh, which, if I understood Aaron correctly, I think he said that his theory was that the the ancient people basically built this big stone uh, um, Ephesus or like, you know, replica. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Like a replica to, to like venerate it, and you know, have some kind of you know remembrance of it. If I remember correctly, that's an interesting theory. I haven't heard that one before. Um, in this magazine right here, Life Magazine, this is where it first appeared to the general public. A U2 spy plane went over and took some photographs of it, uh, just doing reconnaissance. They weren't trying to take a photograph of it. And then they, this is what, this is from 1960, by the way. And that's what they found. That's what they saw. That's what started this whole thing. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, I'm not sure exactly when, John Morris Sr. from the Institute for Creation Research and a group of men, geologists, creationist geologists. Now, think about this for a second. They're creationists and geologists that went over there to see whether or not that was the ark. They brought dynamite with them. They dynamited the thing. Now, there was an earthquake that that took down some of the side of it to give it more shape. They didn't have that at the time. They just had this impression. So they dynamited it to see just exactly what was in there and to see if there was any wood or what. They found nothing. And they said that this is nothing more than a lava flow that is unusual but there's nothing there in the geology that tells us that this was an artifact at any time. That's what they said. Now, Ron Wyatt goes over there, and all of a sudden the story changes a little bit. And here's Ron's newspaper, and there's Ron right there in 1978. And um, they established a, a, a park, a national park there in 1987, Nine years later, he supposedly used all sorts of exotic metal detecting equipment and everything. I'll tell you something. I don't, one of the technologies that he used, and I can't remember what it is now. I'd have to refresh my memory. And here is a picture of one of the things that they were they were doing. Sorry. There you go. Yeah, that was the uh, 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 metal detection. They were gridding everything off, and they were saying that they were finding patterns like metal pins or something. Let me tell you something. I metal detect. Matter of fact, I just opened up a Facebook page last night um, for metal detecting. And I'm, I'm focusing on the exotic metal detectors, not the ones that you find coins with, but the ones that you find larger artifacts with. And they are very limited as far as the depth is concerned. When I read the initially, and again, I don't remember what it was, initially the kind of technology he was using to grid this off and to make some claims about what was below the ground and the and the depth, I realized that they're 
the the type of technology they were using is questionable. There are some things that they manufacture like long range uh, detectors where you point it and it tells you there's gold a half a mile away. There's some weird things that some people manufacture that people really believe in. But I had some suspicion about this technology, one of the technologies that they used. And I don't know how many technologies they used, but let me just get back to metal detecting. Unless you're using ground penetrating radar, and I don't know what the resolution is on ground penetrating radar. They did do that also because that metal thing, I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert, but the videos I've seen, it was this big old square like dolly and they pulled it. And that's correct. Yeah. That's your GPR or your ground penetrating radar. But to use anything that's going to detect metal, let me tell you, let me tell you, if you get a, uh, if you get a nice 14 inch coil, okay, that you're scanning the ground with. And I'm just going to use that as an example. You can find a quarter about 16 inches. That's it. 20, if you're lucky. That's it. So what are they finding? At what depth? Now, if you use a 40-inch or a one-meter coil, you're not even going to find a coin. You're only going to find objects that are, like, larger, like this, you know, but metal. And then you can find them at depth, but the depth of something like that, if you had a metal vase about this big, that kind of technology will reach it at about two meters. That's what they was saying. Feet. Andrew said it was two to three meters below the surface. I do remember that. Oh, right. GPR is the only way you're going to detect any kind of formation in the ground that deep. Unless it's the size of a tank. Then you can detect it at 25 feet, 20 to 25 feet. And I went back and rewatched that interview with Andrew when he gave that presentation for the all access pass holders. He was talking about ground penetrating radar there when he referenced the two to three meters. So he was correct on that part. I just wanted to clarify that because at the time I couldn't remember or recall. But otherwise, no. Otherwise, what you need to do, and if anybody wants to do some research on their own, find out what it is that he used, especially when it comes to detecting the metal specifically, and go look it up. You'll find out soon enough whether or not it can be trusted. Now, the problem with Ron is, is that he couldn't be trusted. I've spoke to two people, three people, one who absolutely loves Ron and believes everything that Ron says. And then I've spoke to two other people that knew Ron, dealt with Ron. Alfred Lee loves Ron, loves him. And I said, what, what is it that you liked about him? He says he was just interesting to talk to. He was affable. He was intelligent. But let me tell you a true story. This will give you an idea of what we're talking about here. And by the way, Alfred said, whether you agree or disagree with him, Ron did a lot of good work. You know, some of the things you may disagree with, I do. Alfred said, but when you put your life on the line, when you're over there in the Middle East like that, he said, you got to give kudos on some level to that individual. And he, and that's what he did. Him and his sons were captured and held prisoner. Oh yeah. (laughs) They were one of the first ones in there to try to find the, the J-Bell laws and the, you know, the real Mount Sinai and and the the crossing. crossing. Alfred was, Alfred was with them the first time they went in to the crossing. Mm. First time. It was Alfred and him in a little dinghy, and they were going to dive. And 
uh, Ron got sick, seasick, really bad, or stomach flu, or whatever it was. He got sunburnt real and, bad, uh, too. He got like sun poisoning, they said. Yeah, well, whatever it was, Ron could not dive, and Alfred um, was able to. And I said, Alfred, I saw you did a sketch of a wagon wheel 70 feet below the surface. I said, how in the world did you see that? I asked him this just in the last year. How in the world were you able to see that? He said, the... He said the conditions were crystal clear. You could see things perfectly. And I saw it and he drew it, you know, because I don't know if you've ever seen the sketch, buddy. He drew a wheel with some little with bit of seaweed. And, yeah. So Alfred said that when they were coming back from Mount Ararat together, just before that, somebody was trying to sell them. He even has a picture of the guy. Alfred does holding this artifact out, trying to sell it to him. And Alfred said in, in, in uh, their native language, no, thank you. You know, can't, it's against the law. <laughs> We're good. Can't buy Can't buy that from you. He claimed that it was a chunk of Noah's Ark, petrified chunk of Noah's Ark. Probably wasn't. Mm. So they're going through customs just before they go through customs. Ron pulls out of his bag. That artifact that Alfred, that they tried to sell to Alfred and says, I don't have room for this in my bag and sticks it in Alfred's bag. And I said to Alfred, how come you, why didn't you do it? He says, we were just about to go through. I couldn't, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't make a, a scene or, or, or whatever. He says, luckily they didn't say anything to me. And then as soon as they got through customs, Ron said, oh, yeah, thanks for, for holding that for me and puts it back in his pouch. Man. Man, that's pretty crazy to hear a story like that from a firsthand account. And you got to remember, too, you know, before you go hating on Ron, Ron was was a maverick, and he was kind of a, you know, rule bender slash breaker. So, I mean, it doesn't seem out of character for Ron. He, you know, thought this artifact was legit. So in typical Ron fashion, you know, he bent slash broke the rules and uh, got them through customs. But, yeah, you got to admit, I mean, it's one thing to ask somebody to do it for you, but to last minute just shove it in their bag. But, like I said, uh, always been a fan of Ron's work, and me and John align, you know, pretty well on our thoughts here on uh, – the things that he'd done and the discoveries that he had, but that was just a, a wild story. I was glad he shared that with us. Oh yeah. So, you know, there's two sides to people and I get it. You know, uh, Ron tried to do the best he could with what he had. He had some very interesting, some sometimes a little bit wacky theories. Um, he was on the, he's spot on when it comes to the crossing of the Red Sea He's spot on when it comes to Jabel Laws, the true Mount Sinai, and the and the rock that split with the water that came out. I believe he's right on. I believe he's right on with um, Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe it wholeheartedly. Not so much with the Noah's Ark and not so much with the Ark of the Covenant. And that, that was me. And, and I try to keep, you know, an open mind. But I, I found all his stuff, you know, really fascinating. But, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, the whole you know, Ark of the Covenant what was just a, a stretch. But I try to tell myself, because I mean I, I am I'm a skeptic. I'm a I question everything. I investigate everything. You know how I'm you know programmed like a God wired me that way. 
but sure but it's like i try to tell myself you know you are a believing christian you believe you know that christ died resurrected after three days he healed the lame he, you know men walked on water in his presence you know angels appeared and uh, immaculate conception so to say that this you know is a lie or couldn't happen you gotta you know kind of check you every once in a while leave yourself open but but even the story man i mean gosh the whole thing he spun together like you know he found the cross hole with a crack in it and then when you go inside there was the the ark with blood stains on it and boom right above the crack so that the blood sprinkles it sounds i mean it, it's beautiful i mean <laughs> it, it, it's like oh you want to believe that, that. Sense. Yeah. you know what i mean yeah i get it mm. well uh is there any other uh people that's claimed to have uh seen the ark at this yes. site on top of the mountain yeah there is there's about 40 of them and i have them on a pdf or, or uh, i'm sorry like a um uh numbers or um what's the pc version of uh well i have a document that that outlines every single person that's seen it what it looks like where it's located so there's been about 40 uh eyewitnesses over the last uh say 1500 years that they that have been documented um my understanding is that the muslims Turks, they know it's the military. They know it's there, but they don't care. It's like, you know, it's like you have something outside your house where everyone is gaga over, but you don't really care. <laughs> it's there. It doesn't present itself very often. They know it's there. And, but yet the Quran says it's somewhere else. So, you know, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. The Armenians still believe that that mountain is holy, that the ark is sacred, and it needs to be protected uh, and that may mean not allowing entities to molest it or even know about it i mean they prefer to just keep things local and quiet that's how they yeah you don't want a bunch of foreigners going in there messing around and invading your space and <clears throat> yeah especially messing with your you know sacred ground they you know they're not the only ones that feel that way. When I was down in Costa Rica and in Peru, I found out pretty quick that if you were to find a golden llama in the ground, they not only is it illegal to take out of the country, but they don't like the idea of a Westerner coming in there, hunting their Incan treasure, and then somehow benefiting from it. They are very, very um, jealous about that idea. And I didn't realize it. I thought, well, who cares, you know? <laughs> They do, <laughs> even if they don't, even if they know where it is and they don't want to benefit from it, they want it, they want it to remain or go to a museum, but no. So it's not, they're not the only ones that feel that way. Yeah. I would like to recommend a book. Yes. It's nothing that we sell, but it's inexpensive and you can go on, jump on Amazon. And I have it. that. In search of, yeah. In search of Noah's Ark. I'm not Ark, ready yet, really but I got it. Great place to start. And then if you're a video person, then go, go ahead and check this in search of Noah's Ark. Okay. That, these are two really good resources. Now on our YouTube channel, I created a playlist on all Noah's Ark videos, including the Arkathon there down in um, Glen Rose, Texas, uh, where Alfred was there as well too. And 
several people who were cl the closest to the hunt for uh, Noah's Ark gave their in information or testimony. Um, so if you want to get on YouTube, just look for us, you know, John Adolphe or Lost World Museum, and you'll find the playlist quick enough. Uh, just look under playlist and you'll find Noah's Ark. And so, and, and, and one other thing, if you're interested in giant resources, go to gianthumans.com. We're uh, creating a library of giant human resources. And that's another topic for another day. But if that is something you're interested in, by all means, at least check it out. No, definitely. And John, thank you for, you know, taking time to talk to us, you know, for this will be released later, but as we're talking, this is Thanksgiving. So you took time to talk to us and I really appreciate it. And as long as you got time, I, I want to have you on and discuss some more fascinating subjects because Giants Would is definitely to. a passion of mine. As okay. you can see, my Peruvian elongated skull. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, but thank you very much. And uh, guys, uh, check out his YouTube channel. Uh, the, the website and I'll be sure to put all that stuff in the show notes until next time. Thanks Joe. Torches high guys. There you guys go. John Adolfi from Lost World Museum and YouTube channel. Man, this was such a, a great find. I just stumbled across his video, reached out, really nice guy we've become friends we we talk often we got plans for some really great content for you guys in the future and of course you know i didn't give you everything a lot of stuff is going to be going into this documentary i'm working on just as soon as i think that i'm ready to start piecing it together and to release it i keep finding just new information and more great stuff guys so your patience is going to be well well worth it so if you're not an all access pass holder you're missing out you're going to get some extra content if you are from this and then you got a really really great documentary coming your way John is also good friends with Alfred Lee the guy that uh, drew these drawings and had all the first hand accounts He's got me in contact with him. So some great, great conversations are coming. So if you are an All Access Pass holder, thank you for supporting my work. And if you guys enjoy the content and are unable to pay for the subscription, five-star ratings and shares are greatly appreciated. Thank you all. For coming on this hero's journey. <laughs>